Hello, I'm Montana. And I'm Samantha. And you're listening to Reaper Tales. And I'm so glad we remembered how to do that because we haven't recorded in two weeks. <laughs> We've uh, also messed it up multiple times. Yeah, that's true. Uh, thanks for uh, giving us grace and allowing us to... Actually, you don't have to allow us to do anything. We do whatever we want. Uh, we're an indie podcast. So. But thanks for sticking around while we took... Uh, a little bit of a break. Really needed it. Anyways, today I'm going to tell Samantha about the mysterious murder of Rhonda Henson. But before we get started, Samantha, what are we drinking? We are doing, I believe, a pick your poison because we pick Trulies. Because <laughs> yeah. you are here and that's what is we. That's what we have. Yeah, we are in the same place. So we're going to take advantage of that. In different rooms. Again, we learned from that disastrous one-time Yeah. I'm still surprised it gets listened to as much as it does, but, you know, (laughs) it is what it is. (laughs) I appreciate the appreciation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, me too. Anyways, let's jump right into this because this is not a short one. Uh, I do have quite a list of resources. I am not going to tell you all of them on mic. I will put them in the show notes. It's just too much to read off. So on the night of December 22nd, 1981, Rhonda Henson attended an office Christmas party with the company she worked for. Rhonda had recently graduated from high school in Valdez, North Carolina. And I hope I'm saying that right. It sounds right. Valdez. Sounds right to me. Um, and started a job as a clerical worker for a local steel company. Rhonda had initially had not planned on going to the party, but after speaking with her work friend, she was convinced to go with them to a party. A quote from Judy, Rhonda's mother, quote, she wasn't sure she was going to the party, Judy said. She really didn't want to go, but her best friend at work said, well, I won't go if you don't go. So Rhonda decided to attend about peer pressure <laughs> or guilt tripping Rhonda worked earlier in the day and called her mother before returning home to get ready quote at the last minute Rhonda said mom go to town and pick me up an outfit to wear Judy told Dateline she looked prettier than I had ever seen her look I I wouldn't trust I would maybe trust you to pick out an outfit for me on your own, <laughs> but like, definitely not Even like then, mom. I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. I guess she trusted her mom. I gotta, I gotta try stuff on. Maybe they'd been shopping together a lot, so she knew what she'd like and what would fit. I mean, it was the eighties. Well, if anybody from the eighties, if anybody is time traveling from the eighties, can you send us an email and tell us if this was a normal thing? Anyway, Judy told Dateline that Rhonda drove to her work friend's house in Hickory and left her car there. She said the friend drove the. T- she said that her work friend drove the two of them to the company party. "Quote: Rhonda had told me and her dad that she was going to stay in Hickory at the girlfriend's house because she didn't want to drive home alone that late. Things obviously didn't go as planned. However, this is a podcast called Reaper Tales, after all. True." 
During the early hours of December 23rd, Rhonda's mother and father had awoken with concern for their daughter. Rhonda's mom actually said she had a premonition that Rhonda had been killed in a car accident. Bobby, Rhonda's father, turned on his police scanner to see if an accident had occurred. This is when they heard that a homicide had taken place. Quote, I think maybe 2.30 a.m., maybe even 3, two of the police officers, the detectives, and another police officer came to our house and told us, Judy told Dateline. Despite her ominous feelings earlier that morning, Judy was in denial that Rhonda was dead when the authorities came to their door. I said, I don't think it's Rhonda. Look, she's never been sick in her life, had everything to live for, and you're saying she's dead. I don't believe that, unquote. Well, I mean, that's a hard thing to believe. Yeah, and especially as a mother. There's also an account of how Rhonda's best friend, Jill, took the news when she found out about the murder. It was pretty devastating, and I'm not going to read it because it will make me cry thinking about it being you, and I love you. I know when I read it I was just I was ready to cry I was like this is how I would feel I try not to think about it like that because yeah I mean some of these stories can really make you tell me about it make you a little sensitive yeah Rhonda was buried uh, on Christmas day this was going to actually be my Christmas story but it felt morbid and gross to do it that way so and especially since, drum roll, please. This is an unsolved case. I, I know you just it. love these. <laughs> I knew it. Okay. Now to what happened. According to the Burke County Sheriff's Office website, Rhonda left the party around midnight and stopped by a friend's house to pick up her vehicle and call her boyfriend. Then, after leaving the friend's residence, Rhonda drove her beige Datsun 210 two-door west on Interstate 40 and exited onto Mineral Springs Mountain Highway 350 off-ramp. She turned right, that's north, and began traveling up a steep hill towards her home. The Burke County Sheriff's website also stated a high-powered rifle projectile was fired into Rhonda's vehicle. The bullet entered the Datsun through the trunk and continued through the back seat and the driver's side seat, entering Rhonda's back and piercing her lung and heart. It goes on to say that Rhonda was found lying in a ditch beside the open driver's side door of her Datsun. She was less than a mile from her home she shared with her parents in Valdez. The vehicle was running and apparently had rolled backwards across the opposite lane into a ditch near the top of the grade after Rhonda was shot. Wow. So, yeah, that's, that's a lot. Uh... This story, it's so odd. There's, like, so much evidence in it, but also not. Uh, There's a lot of details from, like, her mother and Jill, her best friend, about Rhonda as well, which helps lend to the theory that Rhonda had to have known her killer, who her killer was. So I kind of want to get into that information first. And an NBC News Dateline article, Jill told Dateline that Jill is her best friend. Jill told Dateline that she had her own theory that Rhonda knew her killer. Quote, Rhonda was afraid of everything, Jill said. She would not have pulled off to the side of the road and said, hey, let me sit here, unquote. 
Which, I mean, I feel like most people wouldn't do that, especially like at 12.30 in the morning. I would. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. Yeah. It's just an odd thing to do. Jill said she thinks Rhonda, quote, came off the interstate that night and knew someone was going to be there waiting. Unquote. Rhonda's mother, Judy, told Dateline that although she had no idea who would want to kill her daughter, she said in the days leading up to her death, Rhonda was acting strangely. Quote, I could tell a difference. She didn't seem as happy, Judy recalled. Her dad worked at a bakery and had to go to work at 1 or 2 a.m. He said when he would pass going past the house, he would pass her window and she would be awake looking out the window. Unquote which Judy said was unusual, which I mean, it's, it's unusual for anybody. Yeah. It sounds weird. Judy told Dateline that Rhonda never told her parents why her behavior was changing. Quote, she was a very private person. Judy said she didn't tell us anything. Unquote. Her father, Bobby Henson. She was how old again? She was 19. So not super surprising. Yeah. Her father, Bobby Henson, also recalled some odd behavior from Rhonda before her murder. Several weeks before her graduation, she began to behave strangely. Rhonda used to be happy to drive alone, but had begun to ask her father to accompany her on her drives into town. She also made a strange statement to her father on one of these strange trips into town together. A quote from Bobby Henson. I said, what it is, what is it, Rhonda? I said, no matter whether it's good or it's bad, tell me. And she said, I'll think about it. And she never explained, never did tell me why, what it it was, you know, she's afraid to tell me, unquote. Her mother also recalled an uncharacteristic conversation shortly before Rhonda's death. According to her mother, Rhonda wanted to know if it was acceptable to date a married man. Quote, Uh Quote, I said, Rhonda, there's never a time that it's all right to go with a married man. The only thing that comes from that is people getting hurt, unquote. Fair response. Yeah. And I didn't write this down in my notes, but I did see in some other places that this had started um, during her uh, senior, not the, not asking about men or whatever, but it she had started to act strangely during her last year in high school, right before graduation. Like her grades were slipping. She was struggling in school. Um, And at that point she had been dating um, Greg McDowell for two years. This was the second year that they were um, dating. And from all accounts, they were happy. They were in love. But in that second year, he went from writing like love letters and being like just dewy eyed in love with her to um, being aggressive and being controlling and their relationship had really changed at that point. And I just want to say, you know, maybe Rhonda was asking about whether or not it's okay to date a married man about somebody else and that her change in behavior and attitude could be directly like her her current relationship could be responsible for that because when you're in you're in that sort of like um mental abuse 
that sort of abusive situation. You're going to be secretive. You're going to be quiet. You're not going to talk to people about things. You're not going to want to answer questions because you don't know how to answer them appropriately um, without getting into trouble, quote unquote. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. I agree. So, just to clarify there. So, I lost my spot. That's not new. Anyway, okay, here we go. There were obvious signs that Rhonda was under some kind of personal pressure. A special agent with the North Carolina FBI, John Suttle, said, quote, between 12.15 and 12.30 on the morning that Rhonda Henson was murdered, a witness drove under the Interstate 40 bridge on Mineral Springs Mountain Road. She observed a blue Chevrolet facing in a northerly direction with two white males in the vehicle, unquote. The car was parked next to the same off-ramp that Rhonda used to exit. It was spotted 30 minutes before the fatal bullet was fired and just 200 yards from where her body was found. Later that evening, another witness traveling down the same road passed a similar blue car, with a single man at the wheel speeding away from the murder site. As he continued down the road, the witness saw Rhonda's vehicle parked at the same spot where her body was found. A woman was slumped over the steering wheel and a man was standing at her door. The witness was unable to get a close look at the man and drove on, assuming the couple was drunk. With so few clues to go on, police put their witness under hypnosis and asked him to recall more details about the murder scene. A quote from the hypnosis, it was taped, said, A Chevrolet, it looks blue, 70s model, I believe, Looks like the front end of it has been messed up. It's in primer. The primer is gray. He's not a big guy. He's about six foot or five ten. He's about medium build, sort of dark brown haired guy. Unquote. The same witness also recalled seeing a second car parked down the road from Rhonda's car. It was a black or blue Trans Am. Some believe. This car might have belonged to the murderer. So we've got we've got a blue uh, a, a blue Chevrolet that was parked on the on ramp where she inevitably was killed, and someone saw two people in it at one point, and then later saw that vehicle speeding away with only one person in it. There was also I'm just trying to recap here for a minute because a lot of information. There was also a um, Trans Am, and it was either black or dark blue, parked behind Rhonda's car. And at some point, a man was standing over Rhonda as she was slumped against the steering wheel. That's a lot of information. The the one thing that always stands out to me when we when people give descriptions like that, how how do you describe how tall somebody is? And I'm sorry if you're hearing a bunch of noise. My cat is in here and she cannot sit still. Anyway. Um, but like 5'10 to 6 foot. I cannot look at a person and tell you how tall they are. Unless they happen to be standing next to one of those things that's at the convenience store where it actually shows like the feet thing. Yeah. I can't tell you how tall I'm- somebody is. So that always amazes me when people will say like 5'10 to 6 foot. That's actually pretty specific. Yeah. Me. It's super specific. And like. 
I, I don't know how tall you are. I, I have no idea. Like I have no concept of like size at all. I don't know how much you weigh. I don't know what size you are. I don't know how big your feet are. Not sure what color your eyes are. Uh, <laughs> I'm just not that observant. So whenever people say things like, and they say approximately like 180 to 210 pounds, I'm like, yeah, what? Like, how do you know that? Like people don't expect me to weigh as much as I do, but I'm just like compact. <laughs> Well, I was thinking when you like, I can't tell how tall you are. Like, you're just like, it was taller than me, uh, ma'am. We're going to need you to be a little more specific. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. Taller than me. Uh, 80% of people are. <laughs> Probably closer to 90, but okay. But yeah, to be able to, uh, and kudos to people who can. I just, I, I, I don't, if somebody were to ask me to do that, I would have just been in big trouble. I know that was... In one of my previous jobs, that was one thing that they trained you that if there was a possibility of a robbery or something like that, there's, these are the types of questions that you're probably going to be asked to try maybe write them down, like the answers to the questions as soon as possible after so you don't forget. I'm like, I would never be able to answer these questions, so I'd just be in trouble. Like hair color, maybe. Um, no. That's about it, I guess. Like height, weight, nah. I guess, well, even when they told us when we worked at at the bank, when they would tell us to be observant and write that stuff down, most of the time, the teller line, we were on a raised platform. Mm -hmm. And so guessing somebody's height from that, I can't can't do it. No. You, yeah, what? I'm not an engineer. That's why I'm working at the bank. (laughs) I, I I just I just gave them what they asked for and let them go. That's it. That's all <laughs> yeah. I know. I don't know. It was a man, maybe. Question? Possibly. Could have been. Anyway, yeah, that always gets me. So, but that was a very exact description. I mean, granted, he's under hypnosis, but still, and yeah. and that's kind of fascinating to me too. Whenever they do those hypnosis uh, like interview type things, that's always interesting. Yeah, but you can't use hypnosis in a conviction case. Like hypnosis, hypnosis um, statements. No, so I mean it's it's like any other like in, under the influence. I mean they can't use that, mm-hmm. it, and it makes sense. But I guess you know we've I've heard several cases where you know they'll go to like uh, psychics and stuff. I think sometimes they're just looking for any kind of clue that might point them in the right direction and at least get it started. I think they're yeah. just, you know, they get desperate and they're just trying to do anything, which power to them. I mean, by all means, maybe it'll get you on the path one way or another. Yeah, I can see that. I definitely can see that. Anyway, regardless of the many eyewitnesses, and those aren't the only ones, um, we'll get into something in a little bit, but Regardless of the many eyewitnesses and the 40 plus year investigation, police still haven't made an arrest or even named a person of interest in this case. And I want to point out that at the time, this town, city, whatever, had around 4,000 people in it and they could not identify the vehicles. That's a small town to not be able to identify them. Yeah. Over the years, hundreds of Uh, People have been interviewed by investigators assigned to the case. The file on Rhonda's murder contains thousands of documents and has expanded to fill several filing cabinets. Potential suspects and witnesses have been polygraphed. 
psychics have been called in to assist the crime scene and evidence has have been analyzed and reanalyzed yet Rhonda's death and the strange circumstances around it remains a mystery, but maybe it doesn't. I'm going to give a hard disclaimer on the next portion of this case. Right now, the next portion of this case is based on the writings of an investigative reporter. Nay, according to a conversation with Dateline, this person prefers the title of philosopher over reporter. Okay. This man's name is Larry Griffin. He works for the Wilkes record as a reporter or sorry, philosopher. Larry took on Rhonda's case in 2018 and has written over 90 articles on her case so far. Did I read them all? Absolutely not. I have a full-time job. I I was starting to get a little worried when you asked. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I know how you can be. (laughs) Yeah. I can like hyper-focus on things sometimes, but this was not one of them. Uh, I will add a link to his articles. Uh, I cite in the show notes, so you are welcome to go and read the rest if you so choose to do that. I will not. In an article I read from Dateline, this is quoted directly out of the article. I simply want to have you join me down the rabbit hole I started spiraling into and how I got to Larry. Larry told Dateline he had he has published 95 articles on his investigation into Rhonda's murder titled The Killing of Rhonda Henson. And believes he knows what happened to her. There's no way, quote, there's no way it was an accidental shot, unquote, said Larry. Larry said. He goes on to say a bit later, Larry told Dateline that not only does he believe he knows how Rhonda was killed, but he believes he knows who killed her. Quote, this case has been solved for a very long time. Law enforcement knows who killed Rhonda. Unquote. Bold words, Larry. Bold words. Be careful. But I'm here for it. So I couldn't let Larry just get some small quotes out of all of this. I decided to read several of his articles and give all you great listeners an abbreviated version of a few of them. And I just, I want to point out, I give props to Larry. Like, he did his due diligence in this. But there are, and if you do so choose to go and read these articles, I want to remind listeners, this is the opinion of Larry. Reaper Tales podcast does not have an opinion on this. We are not accusing anyone of murder. We are simply reading off the opinions of a reporter. Okay. So I couldn't let Larry. Blah, blah, this sorry. must be strongly worded because you're putting a lot of disclaimers out here. It, uh, you could say something like that. <laughs> During the investigation, according to Larry's articles, police in- inventoried several items in Rhonda's car. One item in particular was a pink snake inventoried. It was like a stuffed like pink snake. Um, Jill Turner, Rhonda's best friend, upon examination of the items, discovered uh, the pink snake in Rhonda's car that Greg McDowell, Rhonda's boyfriend, won for Rhonda during a Myrtle Beach trip. There was some sort of like sexual joke and the snake was supposed to be some type of trophy or something like that. I didn't want to put all that in here. 
So it was memorable to her. But when Mark Turner, Jill's boyfriend, who had also been on this trip, was asked about the snake, he stated he didn't remember it, but he's a dude and well. Fair. Yeah. When investigators spoke with Greg about the snake, he stated that the snake stayed in his bedroom on his dresser, dresser, yet it was found in Rhonda's car the night that she was murdered. It doesn't look like investigators pressed Greg's, Greg farther on those contradictions. And that's not the first or the last time investigators didn't fully press about contradictions from the McDowell family. Okay. Over the course of many interviews with Greg and his mother, the time frame of calls made and where they were made to were contradictory and blatant lies. Like, there are actual phone records that contradict this. It's all a bit convoluted, but the gist is this, is that Greg initially told investigators that he spoke to Rhonda at 12.30 a.m. the morning of her murder. He also told investigators he believed she was at home during the time of the call. No caller ID, none of that stuff. However, neither the time nor the location were correct. His mother makes several contradictions about times of phone calls during her interviews as well. But I'm not going to go over all of them. I'm sure you're wondering why 30 minutes would really matter in this case, but our good friend Larry goes on to explain it pretty well. And I shall continue to summarize for you. In part 87 of his articles, Larry... (laughs) I just can't. There's so many of these articles. Fair enough. In part 87 of his articles, Larry lays out a pretty good case against Greg McDowell. Um, And just to go back to the phone calls... There was another portion in that where after Rhonda had left her work friend's house, he had said he went to his parents and asked for that work friend's number, but they didn't have it. Again, small town. Everybody knows everybody. So he then says that he calls Rhonda's parents at two something in the morning to try and get the phone number for that work friend. He then says that he calls the work friend to see if Rhonda was still there or if she had gone home. And here's the problem. He didn't call Rhonda's parents at two something in the morning. Phone records prove that. But I don't know if he called the work friend's house. One person in that house says that he did. The other person doesn't. Hmm. But still... Another convoluted thing about him calling somebody and saying he didn't. He also stated continuously that he thought that she had called from her own home. When on the phone, they had been fighting previously in the day because she had not invited him to this Christmas party. And I think that's what their fight was about. I don't know. That's conjecture on my part. But anyway, Burdell Pittman the mother of Sherry, who was Rhonda's work friend, she was attending the work party with that evening, recalled that approximately 11.50 that the night of the work party, the two women returned uh, from their party. They made their way upstairs and chatted a bit 
before Rhonda went downstairs and asked Miss Pittman to use her phone to call her boyfriend, Greg. She stated it wasn't long distance, so she wouldn't get a charge, and Miss Pittman allowed her to call her boyfriend. Back when long distance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Miss Pittman nor her daughter overheard the conversation. And actually, <laughs> I think they said they weren't eavesdropping, but went on to describe snippets of her conversation with Greg. <laughs> <laughs> so. Get off the extension. <laughs> yeah, I know. Sherry overheard Rhonda tell Greg she was going home. The three of them would be the only ones aware that Rhonda was not staying the night at the Pittman residence. Once Rhonda hung up with Greg, she went to the restroom only to exit it a few minutes later. Miss Pittman stated it was obvious she had been crying, and she asked her if Greg was mad. And Rhonda said, Good God, yes, he's mad. Hang on, I gotta get comfortable. Ugh. I'm not comfortable unless I'm sitting weird in a chair. Same. This is going to be fun to cut out later. <laughs> Rhonda left, but in an odd turn of fate, which could only happen in a small town, Rhonda's best friend Jill had awoken on her boyfriend's couch at a couple of minutes past midnight that same night. Her curfew was at midnight, and she was in a panic to get home. So Mark mm -hmm. and her started on their way to Jill's home. When they pulled up to Jill's, she noticed in the back seat a hooded gray sweatshirt that belonged to Rhonda. She asked Mark why it was there, and Mark replied, she must have left it when they went Christmas shopping for Jill's presents. Jill asked if he wanted her to return it to Rhonda, but he said, nah, he'd give it to Greg next time he saw him. Jill shrugged it off and went into her home. As Mark was making his way home, however, he spotted a familiar car, a blue Chevy Nova. Mark followed the car, and it parked on the shoulder. The back half of the vehicle was concealed by the shadow of the I-40 overpass. The front half could easily be seen by a westbound driver taking exit 112 and pausing at the stop sign before turning onto Mineral Springs Road, Elder Street. During the rest of this, I'm going to quote directly from Larry's article. Again, this is the opinion of the reporter, I want to make that clear. I do want to make it clear that Larry isn't the only one who wrote about uh, the pieces that led up to his conclusion on this case. I found other articles that state the same things. However, Larry does take some created liberties in constructing what he believes happened that night. Fair enough. Purportedly, law enforcement reported to the Hinsons that Turner acknowledged at some juncture... He was parked on an interstate off-ramp talking to McDowell about the pending breakup between him and Rhonda, who happened to be his girlfriend's best friend. Mark averred that he could, rem he could remember neither of the time of the conversation nor which off-ramp. During the brief conversation, Greg ostensibly told his friend that he had some of Rhonda's personal effects that he was going to return to her as soon as she arrived from Hickory. She had agreed to meet him there at the exit before driving the rest of the way home. It would have been the op optimal opportunity for Turner to do that which he told Jill he was going to do, give the sweat jacket to Greg. 
that Rhonda had left in his car five days before. Upon doing so, Turner steered his headlights towards Hickory and home. He had absolutely no intentions of getting in the middle of a lover's quarrel. It was 12.40 a.m. as Rhonda approached exit 113. Sorry, I guess 112 was the one before it, but anyway. At Rutherford College, she could see Mineral Springs Mountain exit just ahead. It was all too familiar to her as she had driven onto its off-ramp every workday for the last three months or so. She really wanted to just go home, but she agreed over the phone to meet Greg one final time to retrieve her personal belongings left intentionally or otherwise at Wilkie's Grove over the last couple of years. Rhonda especially wanted to reclaim her East Burke jacket. The headlights of the Datsun 210 illuminated the exit sign as she veered right onto the off-ramp. Approaching the stop sign, she could easily see Greg's blue Nova. There was no oncoming traffic, so she turned left, drove past McDowell, likely made a U-turn, and steered her car back towards Valdez, stopping on the opposite side of the road across from her, soon-to-be ex-boyfriend. As Greg approached her idling Dotson carrying some of her personal belongings, she turned the radio down, switched on the dome light, and rolled down her window. Rhonda unbuckled her restricting lap belt so she could pivot to place her personal things on the back seat and floorboards of her vehicle. However, the transfer of the treasure trove most surely was not without incident. The anchor that had seethed inside of McDowell for several days seemed to have not been abated at all. In fact, it was roiling to a point beyond containment. With each item he passed through her window, his hurt and animus was palpable and manifested itself at first through projective comments and castigations. Finally, a heated argument likely erupted as their elevated voices carried across the cold night air and up the ridges. George Crane, who lived nearby, would later tell the Hensons that he heard the voices of a male and a female shouting loudly at each other about the time frame in question. Another, another, Ear witness, not eyewitness, ear witness. Oh, <laughs> okay. Finally, her Eastberg letter jacket was passed through the window. She placed it on top of other clothing stacked towards the right side of the back seat. As the confronta- a confrontation erupted into, I'm not, no, I'm, no, I'm not just, whatever. Rhonda perhaps felt fear for the first time. She knew that Greg was capable of violence During the time that they had dated, McDowell had pushed and shoved her before at least once, and at least once had purportedly backhanded her. Now, since they were breaking up, the tension, sorry, once the breakup, the tenuous constraints, which modulated his, this guy needs to stop with these words, his (laughs) propensity towards aggression were gone. The last item that Greg tossed at Rhonda was the recently acquired gray hooded sweat jacket. She slung it over her right shoulder towards the sun deck where it came to rest. Then, precipitously, the 19-year-old shoved the stick shift into first gear, accelerated towards Valdez and home. Quickly, she shifted in into second gear, up ahead to her right as she was about to crest and inclined, Rhonda could see the garden center. As the Dotson's engine roared in complaint, she automatically shifted through neutral, 
neutral towards third gear. Mike Warren and Diane Lowman had only been inside Miss Lowman's house on Hoss Ridge Road for about a minute before they heard the distinct sound of the report of a high-powered rifle. They looked at the clock, and it was 12.55 a.m. So all that said, that was a narrative that was written by, again, Larry. But I think he does make some great points, and the one things that I see in what he wrote that are also the same in other people's articles on this case is that um, Mark did see Greg around that time that night and stopped to talk to him. He did give Greg that sweatshirt. That sweatshirt was found in Rhonda's car in the inventory. And yet, and yet, the only problem I have with the whole situation is the simple fact that there were two cars found there. And I can't figure out if the two or there were three people at some point found around there. Now, I'm not, it could be that the one person who saw that car had two people in it could be mistaken. Entirely possible. It could be mistaken. But if they saw two cars parked along the same place where her car was found, that could be Mark and Greg. There's a lot of could be's because this is just eyewitness, ear witness, whatever testimony or, you know, going off of that. That's unfortunately very, very often not the most accurate. Yeah. It's a bunch of could be, should be, might be, who knows? Bees. I I don't know. Our memory is very faulty. Yeah. So thoughts. I mean, let me say the thing is, talk for a minute. (laughs) Yeah. So the thing is, like, obviously they met and, you know, had an interaction of some kind, but there's no way of really knowing what that interaction looked like or or how it went down. He could have just thrown her stuff in the car and drove away, angry or not. Like, he could, they could have just been left at that. Um, it does make sense if he's got if he's getting more violent and abusive that um, another guy saying I have his sweatshirt he would make the automatic assumption and could easily use that as a justification for attacking her definitely wouldn't be out of the realm also on top of it you know apparently they're they're going their separate ways so he's not going to be happy about that um, I don't think it was an accident. I don't think it was. Like an accident, I, don't think, I don't think it was an accidental shooting. I think it was very intentional. Um, I do too, especially since there was only one shot, one shot. Which that was a really good shot, I will say. But mm-hmm. still, uh, he could have just had a really good angle. Um, whoever it, he is, I'm not saying who I think it is uh, necessarily, but it does seem like there is definite motive and opportunity there um, for further investigation to make a lot of sense. And I will say, like, I did see in some articles where the police did lean on Greg. Like, they pulled him out of school. They gave him, like, polygraph tests and things like that. But to me, linking the fact that he was seen that night with that those items that were later found in her car means that there's some sense of circumstantial evidence there. So. Yeah, I would say so. At the very least. 
Yeah. But, but I, I, and I think, I think this is one of the cases where, like you said at the beginning, there's, there's lots and lots of evidence. There's just not a, a whole lot of, there's not that smoking gun that they need to like really point them in a specific direction definitively. Yeah. And speaking of guns, like they couldn't see if he had a rifle that matched the bullet. That seems odd to me, but I didn't see anything about that. And another thing about the snake, and I forgot to write it above ADHD, whatever, um, the stuffed pink snake, Mm -hmm. it was put into uh, evidence, quote unquote. It was written down on items found inside of her car, but the snake was never located and no photos of it were ever taken, which Mm. leads me to believe that evidence is missing. Yeah. Uh, well, it leads some people to believe that evidence is missing. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that wouldn't be the first time. And things were done differently 40 years ago. Um, obviously, they were careful, but I don't think there there was quite to the level that it is now um, with all the additional scrutiny they've been, been under over the past 40 years. Yeah. Anyway... Um, so I don't like these unsolved ones. I know you don't, but I might (laughs) have so many questions. News in recent years, detectives have revisited the case of Rhonda Henson's murder in a December, 2021 article from WBTV. It states the Burke County Sheriff's office said that in recent months, additional data has been provided resulting in detectives pursuing this new line of information. Though I could not find what that data was, maybe we will have answers to this crime soon. Cool question mark. Another one of those you're going to have alerts on. Yeah, I'll have alerts on it. This is a pretty um, well-known case in that area. I mean, 41 years. And there's also a, just a, if anybody's listening to this, I know we have several listeners in North Carolina, but there is a $20,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest in this case. So just so you know that, um, to give any evidence, you can contact the Burke County Sheriff's office and we will put a link to their website in the show notes. So, yeah, my thoughts are Larry's the fucking boss. (laughs) He don't give no shits about anybody. And he should have really written a book instead of, 90 95 articles <laughs> <laughs> like after 95 i saw i saw a couple of his articles and i was like well I, I saw a couple of his articles when i was initially researching this and then i read that dateline report and it quoted him and i was like actually i think you were sitting there when i was reading that because i snorted at the fact that he liked to call himself a philosopher and i was like he's this turd <laughs> oh okay that's what you were laughing yeah. about yeah And so uh, I started, I went back and I was like, oh, I saw some of his articles, but I didn't open them up. Uh, And then I started really looking at several of them and I was like, okay, maybe he's not. I mean, that, that quote makes him kind of turdish. Let's be honest. (laughs) But he does, he is very passionate about this case and he really does want answers to Rhonda's murder. And uh, kudos to him. Like, I'm here for it. And he might be, he's obviously one reason why this case is still alive. So, yeah. 
I'd completely agree with that. Always thanks to to people that do that to make people aware of these cases that they're still unsolved and this is still something where the family is has no answers mm-hmm. for the loss of their loved one and that's that shouldn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Super passionate. Larry, if you're listening to this, I'm a fan. I'll keep following you. Don't worry. Um, I'm sorry I called you a turd. Choose better words. Uh, and maybe put the thesaurus down on some of the words. Yes. Simple words uh, yes. are okay sometimes. <laughs> Especially for simple-minded people like me. <laughs> anyway. Good uh, job. So it, was yeah. a, it was a good case. Yeah, I think Very so. Very frustrating. I mean, like you said, it's a lot of evidence. There's just nothing... It's a lot of evidence, but it's a lot of nothing evidence. Yeah. And it's like frustrating. All of it's like circumstantial or, you know, it's just, it gets so frustrated about those things. Yeah. Anyway. uh, I don't know which would be, which is worse is, is having a lack of evidence or having a lot of evidence, but nothing that really guides the case to a solution. Because in either case, you're very unfulfilled because there's only so much you can do. Um. I wonder if the one would, I feel like if you have a lot of evidence, but none of it really proves it, it's still frustrating because you feel like you could have done more, but I feel like it might be a little bit less frustrating than just not being able to find anything. Cause at least then you have some kind of evidence that you've been digging and trying. I mean, yeah, I agree. And if there wasn't a lot of evidence, we probably wouldn't cover it quite frankly. True. Because there wouldn't be much to cover. Um, but this is a case where it's basically all circumstantial. Yeah. And honestly, they did the right thing. They didn't take it to trial. Yeah. So there's been other cases we've covered where they've had this kind of evidence. They've gone to trial and somehow the people get convicted. And then hopefully it gets overturned because honestly, there's nothing really concrete linking somebody. And there's no reason for somebody to go to jail if you can't definitively link them to a crime. Yeah. And I, I would totally agree with that. With the evidence that's laid out, I, I'm not like my boy, Larry. I cannot say that Greg is the one who uh, murdered Rhonda. I can't do it. I wouldn't convict him on it. Do I think that maybe he could have? I'm not going to tell you guys that because I don't want to get sued. But <laughs> we'll talk about that. After. You can infer <laughs> my thoughts on that from what I just said. Point I being is so. I can have my opinion but even if I have the opinion that somebody could have done that, that they could have had the motives, opportunity, and the means to do it, if the evidence presented doesn't prove without a reasonable doubt, I can't, I would never convict, even if I thought in my heart that it was true. Same. So they just, hopefully they found something um, that's going to help them. But that's been a year now and there hasn't been much of an update. There's been one update that happened about a month ago. Two months ago, but it wasn't much of anything. Just a short article. Sucks. Keep your fingers crossed if anything happens. I will get the alert and let everybody know, just like any of the other cases. So, yeah. Thanks. Good job, me. Yeah, good job. That was that was a good case. Uh, I'm glad you didn't go over all 95 articles. I'm also glad you did not actually read all 95 articles. No. I would have it's a little bit my, far down the rabbit hole. Yeah, I would have flicked my eyeballs out. I mean, I'm not going to do another uh, Brenda Holland. Let's be honest here. So, <laughs> there's if I had read all of those articles, I probably would would have done a three parter. And I'm just not going to do that to you guys. Anyway, Samantha, 
where can our um, Reaper pals <laughs> find Reaper us? Pals. Now you Reaper have a name. We, you can find us at Reaper Tales Podcast. You can email and us. Sorry. Did I? I was going to ask, but it's fine. Just, okay. just go. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, at least we got it through the intro, right? You know, I got to mess something up at least once. Uh, uh, you got, you can, you must email us <laughs> at reapergals at reapertales.com. Email us your suggestions, uh, any, uh, I don't know, cute dog pictures. Uh, we do like cute dogs or cats. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, email us and tell us how pretty we look and email us to tell Samantha happy birthday. Turn 29 again. That's right. (laughs) What was next? Uh, Oh, yeah. Like, rate, review, subscribe, all of the lovely things uh, to help other people find us on all of the listening platforms. Yep. Whichever one you use. That's correct. And until next time... uh, Love you, made it by. The Reaper.